to the Earth Wants You. I'm Savitri D with Reverend Billy. Hello, Savi. Hey, Rev. Now, this is a production of the Church of Stop Shopping. Out here in Brooklyn, New York, today we're dealing with the ancients. We're dealing with the stuff that's happening in, in, in yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're dealing with the old and the new. How do they impact each other? How, how is it that we're so paralyzed in the face of extinction? Why can't we get up off our, what, <laughs> butts <laughs> and fly? Go down that street with a particular message of emergency that makes it possible for people to be released from their, their social conditioning and come out and deal in a new way with this unprecedented apocalypse. And then, and there, and there we, there we're at the heart of our subject matter, because Savi, am I right? Apocalypse is a part of the American character. It's a part of why we think we don't have to deal with it. In its true sense, the unveiling, the unsheathing, the uh, the the revelation of self, the revelation of one's self in place. Apocalypse. So many meanings. We're attached to it because we have this fascination with the messianic. We're attached to it because when we picture apocalypse, we think of ourselves at, at our romantic best. Marvel yeah. comic superheroes with special powers. That's right. And they are up against an evil something or other, Thanos or mm-hmm. some kind of devil, mm-hmm. who uh, will end life as we know it. That, mm-hmm. that, the agent of the apocalypse mm-hmm. is, is uh, there. And because it's a perfect fantasy for an adolescent, and we are, if nothing else, an adolescent juvenile culture. (laughs) If that. We might just be little tiny wormy babies. (laughs) That's what I suspect. Well, the Bible and Hollywood have taken us to that other (laughs) definition of apocalypse, which is the the end of the world with a messianic arrival, a Napoleonic rock star, Mm. descending from the clouds and... Yes, but I want the grandmothers. I want to be with the grandmothers during the apocalypse. I want the knowledge and wisdom of the grandmothers. You want to break out of the the menstrual hut, the the prison for women. You know, speaking of the menstrual hut... Yes. It's been in the news lately. No, I don't kidding. bring it up very often. I got I got Howlin' Wolf for you. Whoa! Check it out. Check it out. Oh, ask them for water. Oh, she brought me gasoline. Just a turbulent woman. Baby 
coming back home. For water, she brought me gasoline. I say that song's for uh, Sintoya Brown, granted clemency after 15 years in prison for killing the man who sex trafficked her. Amen. Come on, come on, women, let's go. <laughs> what else to say? And now it's time for the uh, the news, and I've got some for you. Mm, the news. I want to sing it like Howlin' Wolf here. Oh, the news. From the natural world. Welcome to News from the Natural World. I'm Savitri D. A little more than a month ahead of a first ever federal trial over the issue of whether or not Monsanto's popular weed killers can cause cancer, a new analysis raises troubling questions about the EPA's handling of pertinent science on glyphosate safety. According to the report, which examines the opposing positions taken by the EPA, and an international cancer research agency on glyphosate-based herbicides, the EPA has disregarded substantial scientific evidence of genotoxicity associated with weed-killing products, such as Roundup and other Monsanto brands. Genotoxicity refers to a substance's destructive effect on a cell's genetic material. Genotoxins can cause mutations in cells that can lead to cancer. The EPA classifies glyphosate as not likely to be carcinogenic, while the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, classifies it as probably carcinogenic. So, we will soon be shown the documents that prove the EPA has long uh, ignored scientific evidence. We've, we've had the proof many times. Well, let's get more. The rate of daily nest predation, that's eggs stolen from the nest by predators such as foxes or rodents, has increased threefold over the past 70 years in the Arctic, according to a new study that looked at more than 38,000 nests from 237 shorebird population in 149 locations throughout the world. An exhaustive study, people. The study is the latest to show trouble for shorebird populations that migrate to the Arctic. Though most of the previous research has pointed to problems away from breeding grounds and suggests that the energy-intensive long-distance flights to breeding spots in the far north may no longer be the safest bet for some birds. Around the globe, about 45% of Arctic shorebird populations are decreasing. The Arctic now represents an extensive ecological trap for migrating birds. Oh my god. PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric. Pacific Gas and Electric, the California utility company, is facing vast payout for wildfires and says it will file for bankruptcy. The company is citing the potential of more than $30 billion in liabilities due to the catastrophic wildfires of 2017 and 18, 
says Chapter 11 filing will be the only viable option for meeting financial obligations. Experts say the company's gas and electric service should be unaffected. (laughs) Climate change is changing our wind patterns, which is strengthening waves traveling across the Earth's surface. Increased wave velocity happening all over the globe. More people were killed by air pollution than by AIDS and malaria last year. The world lost $160 billion to disasters, and climate change played a big role. 2018 was the year climate change became ever clearer, with wildfires, cyclones, and hurricanes ravaging the world. I use this as an example of... More useless headlines from around the world. (laughs) A small green shoot is growing on the moon in an out-of-this-world first after a cotton seed germinated on board a Chinese lunar lander. Cotton on the moon, people. I don't know. Chinese are farming on the moon. I don't know how that... While the cyclones and (gasps) tsunamis... Super strong. Research with the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, set up by the South African government to help deal with the trauma of apartheid uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, that research shows that victims who have indicated they had forgiven perpetrators were less angry and distressed than those who did not. It's also found that victims were more notably forgiving if they received an apology. In this study, forgiveness is defined this way. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting or minimizing the pain we feel, nor is it about excusing others. Forgiveness means making a conscious and deliberate decision to let go of our feelings of resentment or revenge, regardless of whether the person who has upset us deserves it. So glib apologies are not... Forgiveness is, in the first place, not about others. It is about stopping ourselves from allowing resentment toward others to make life miserable for us. Interesting. Forgiveness helps you uh, deal with bitterness and anger. That seems obvious, uh, but doesn't make it any easier. It seems... I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of person who would be surprised by this research. Because it is obvious. It's common sense. Sometimes. We'll leave it at that. As a survivor, say, of sexual assault myself, I would say that the process of forgiveness took many, many years. And there were many times within that process that it would not have seemed obvious or commonsensical to forgive that man, for instance. But eventually I was able to. And this is an interesting definition of forgiveness because I think it is more more accurate. And more active. active, Exactly. Back to the news. The people who hold the most extreme views opposing genetically modified foods think that they know the most about GM food science, but actually know the least. (laughs) (laughs) Marketing and psychology researchers asked more than 2,000 U.S. and European adults for their opinions about genetically modified foods. The surveys asked respondents how well they thought they understood genetically modified foods, then tested how much they actually knew with a battery of true-false questions on general science and genetics. More than 90% of study respondents reported some level of opposition to GM foods. The paper's key finding is that the more strongly people report being opposed to GM foods, the more knowledgeable they think they are on the topic, but the lower they score on an actual knowledge test. Our findings suggest that changing people's minds first requires them to appreciate what they don't know, said study co-author Nicholas Light. 
Antarctica experienced a six-fold increase in yearly ice mass loss between 1979 and 2017. New research suggests suggests that long after our roiling, boiling, life-giving star runs out of fuel, it will slowly form a cold, dead, super-dense crystal sphere about the size of the Earth that will linger like a translucent tombstone for close to eternity. In tens of billions of years from now, the universe will be made largely of dense crystal spheres, says Pierre-Emmanuel Tremblay, an astrophysicist. In the future, these objects will be completely dominant. This is going to interrupt my cocktail on the back balcony. (laughs) How valuable is Facebook to its users, and how can you measure the value of the site when access is free? Three economists and a social media researcher pooled their work and expertise to assess Facebook's value to its users, in contrast, say, to its market value or its contribution to GDP. Using a series of auctions in which people were actually paid to close their accounts for as little as one day or as long as one year, the researchers found that Facebook users would require an average of more than $1,000 to deactivate their accounts for one year. So that's what it's worth to people. That doesn't I'm seem like very much. What? Yeah. There's billions of Facebook users. A thousand bucks. We'd have to pay them so much to get rid of that stupid thing. A new study analyzed 50 years of news headlines on the Israel. A new study analyzed 50 years of news headlines on the Israel-Palestine conflict and found an overwhelming slant toward the Israeli point of view. U.S. newspapers are more than twice as likely to cite Israeli sources and headlines than Palestinian ones. Of course. Millions of years ago, a mega whale species roamed the oceans. Now, an analysis of their stomach contents reveals they may have been top of the food chain and even eaten other whales. Bacillosaurus isis could grow to 18 meters in length, three times the length of an orca. They lived 38 to 34 million years ago in the Atlantic Ocean near modern North Africa. Well, something ate them. I mean, they didn't survive. Star formation peaked 10 billion years ago, less than 4 billion years after the Big Bang. We kind of missed the party. And it's been declining ever since, says Kari Helgeson at the University of Iceland. The stars are dimming? Yes, there's just less and less new star, new life, new astrophysical activity of the generative and creative kind. And now we're just responding. So Lady Gaga and Beyonce, they Star formation peaked 10 billion years ago. 10 billion years... The news is always fascinating, and there can never be enough of it. I can't get enough of the news. I could read all day all the interesting things going on Earth. It's just, the thing is, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart, because you know that we are (laughs) ruining it. In trouble. Humans are ruining it, and (laughs) there's so much left that we don't know, and so much left to discover, and so many creatures and species and animals... You know, right, and life has its own force. Right now, the the jackal is making a comeback in Europe. There's this 
small golden jackal. It's, it's smaller than a coyote. It, and, and it's it's making inroads in Europe. And now there's more jackals in Europe than there are wolves. Like, a lot more. Now, of course, a jackal to some people just looks like a little dog or like a miniature something or other. But, you know, it's a wild mammal, a predator. And to me, the thrill of like seeing a picture of a of a of a jackal roaming around the outskirts of Ljubljana in Slovenia, you know, finding its <laughs> way to the mountains of, of, of wild Slovenia. It just what a thrill. So please humans, let's get to work. What now the earth wants you is the name of this uh, radio hour. What does the earth want with us right now? Would okay. You say? One thing for sure, l- limit human habitat, l- limit human, uh, habitat period Uh Uh eo wilson is right if you could really just get humans off half the earth that would be great if we could just leave it alone if humans could just stop going to the wild places if humans could just stay out of those places if humans could limit themselves and in any way that would be a good start in any way the earth wants us to love life enough to limit the kind of life we've been living. Yeah, although I'm suspicious of language like the earth wants us to love life because it it puts humans in this role of, I don't know, it's like... Does it sound Christian? It sounds Christian (laughs) or chauvinistic, like human chauvinism is at the heart of that or, yeah, the earth just wants to propagate life, right? The earth right is now, a the earth dimming is a, star. In a process of extinction. So the, the, the earth is withdrawing from life right now in response to its predator species. Uh, and so we are a part of that predator species and we're on this microphone right now reaching out to our listeners, appealing to our listeners to regard Listen to the earth. Listen to this living being who has messages for us, sometimes coming in the form of when we fall in love, that's the earth acting through us. When there's a deadly tsunami that's killing whole cities, that is also the earth talking. The earth has messages in the form of brilliant minds as well. And, uh, we're very happy today that we have Jex Blackmore uh, joining us on the Jex phone. Jex Blackmore. Um, Jex Blackmore. Jex Blackmore is best known for her radical, often controversial performances in public spaces, ranging from the steps of the state capitol to outside women's health clinics. Her work, which is focused on the relationship between moral, religious rhetoric, sexuality, and political policy, takes aim at institutions of social and sexual oppression. In 2015, she organized the largest satanic gathering in history to unveil the satanic temple's Bahomet Monument. Uh, Her reproductive health care advocacy has ranged from disrupting anti-choice demonstrations using gallons of milk and writing about her personal abortion experience in the viral blog entitled Unmother. She is working now on a 24-hour film about abortion waiting periods. Um, She's also the former spokesperson of the Satanic Temple and lives in Detroit. Uh, I do apologize. The the phone line was not great. Uh, We've done our best to clean it up, but I just want to give you a little intro about Satanism. Um, 
At its core, non-theistic Satanism celebrates the individual, while the Satanic figure serves as a model of agency in opposition to arbitrary authority. In this way, socio-political resistance can be practiced as a form of Satanic worship, one which both exemplifies reverence of the Satanic ideal and empowers individual participants, creating a transformative psychological event. Uh, so Jax deals with this, uh, the rituals of, of, of satanic practice, um, but in this very unusual way. Um, and I met her at a conference at Columbia a few weeks ago and uh, was just... A fascinating person. Yeah, it's just really anyway, special. we'll drop in on that conversation now. Uh, an original intelligence. Yeah, follow this woman because she is, really has a lot to tell mm-hmm. us and teach us. Jax Blackmore. We have so few narratives around rebellion other than the superhero and other than Jesus, and they're the same narrative. So even just to instigate like the imaginative process of another kind of rebel, right, um, that Lucifer could have been a rebel, you know, and that we can look at him within the context of resistance and we can learn from it, right? We can see, oh, there is power in the resistance. There is power in rebellion. Um, but I wonder if there's some point for you where the, um, where the true religiosity becomes like problematic or unnerving or, um, where you, you want to like distance yourself from it and, and, and use it purely as a narrative. You don't take it on as a theistic position at all. Right. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't take it as a theistic position. Um, I, you know, I believe that religion, you know, has many defining features, such as a shared set of beliefs and an aesthetic um, and a community, uh, you know, a guiding tenet or, or a belief system. Um, it often includes a supernatural element um, or God element that concept of, of Satanism does not. I mean, there's people who, who say that religion should be abolished all, in general, that all, all religion is harmful, and I think that there's valid reasons to say that considering, you know, history um, and, and, and all that religion has played in, in being extremely oppressive force. Um, however, there's like another way of looking at it, which is, well, what does religion mean, and why do we allow people to define it in one particular way? And, um, and might we say that, you know, and a commitment to um, the environment um, and and the, the values and communities surrounding that is is religious in nature. And if we can take away the kind of sting of that historical memory of, of how physical and harmful that can be, we can also elevate it and use it as a, as a way of, of bringing people together and creating um, community. And also certainly um, asking the law to respect it, um, considering that there's a lot of exemptions and privileges granted to it. Organizations. I mean, that's certainly that's one approach um, to the question. But also, Satanism is uh, a belief in a philosophy that celebrates the individual. So, um, I certainly don't speak for all Satanists, and um, there are many people who continue to practice as individuals and privately in their own lives and define um, what the kind of practice means for them. And that's um, also valid. We found after. Um, after 9-11, Jax, when we were just starting the Church of Stop Shopping, uh, we found large numbers of people coming to our, um, our services. Um, 
they seem to trust us not to have a patriarch and mm-hmm. a bunch of powerful women in the choir. And I was dressed up like the satire of mm-hmm. of a right-wing televangelist. So, but what we learned, we were learning from our audience. I hope they learned something from us. What we definitely learned something from the people that were showing up were people uh, like you just described, individuals who were putting together personal systems of um, ways of being amazed at life and uh, regarding life from uh, nature and the arts and intimacy and um, wisdom sayings and just stuff they were picking up as they went through their individual lives. And we started getting to this feeling that um, they just had to come and be in a fellowship situation because we all wanted to hold hands and cry together, you know, after after the towers came down. But that, in fact, they had been doing fine <laughs> for quite some time, uh, just quietly, you know, building their own uh, their own little personal spiritual life. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, religious organizations enjoy a very privileged and also very important role in society and in our communities, um, because it is one of the very few places. And of course, this isn't universally applicable, but it is in theory one of the one of the few places that a community can organize and can um, get to know each other in, on a level that is is more personal and valuable um, outside of you know work situation or family mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. how strangers can come together. And um, and especially in, in in an era where we are, you know, both inundated with images and the media and the press, it's, it's very important, I think, to find spaces where that can happen. Mm-hmm. And it's also very difficult to conceive of, of spaces like that that aren't religious in nature. So, I mean, creating a framework that people are comfortable with and can understand, but a philosophy that's um, you know, more realistic or um, speaks to people who don't want to identify kind of with the oppressive religious system that exists or that we both sort of, many of us know as we grew up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that incredibly valuable resource to organize people and to create space for kind of dialogue and, and um, sharing experiences. I'd like to talk about the the way it can be used as a wedge. So the way you can open a door and then you can deliver a different message. So, I mean, that's something we've done in our work for years, but um, I was struck by um, the the power of just using religious words, like using the word Satan, um, how it, it, it changes the conversation. It's very, uh, it, it, it's hostile at first, right, <laughs> to most people, right? But so they have to stop and then they take a deep breath or they're kind of like, wait, hold on, what does it mean? Um, and in that question, right, what does it mean? Um, you have all this space as, a, as an activist, as a thinker, as a philosopher, um, and even just as a, as a person explaining yourself. So um, do, you, do you find uh, that it's useful as a wedge or do you, do you carry it further than that? Um, how, how, how long do you carry that torch? Personally, I can see from my, my personal approach to activism um, is, is finding ways in, in which I can inspire people to, to think differently, to, uh, to question um, the kind of, you know, oppressive norms 
threat to from the world around them or, or even themselves. And I think we often are very rarely confronted with things that, that force us to reconsider those kinds of norms in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we don't have that experience, and um, it's, it's really, it's really difficult to know truly who we are um, and what we believe. And it also um, creates, you know, um, kind of a tunnel of, of similar beliefs of people who have been informed by essentially systems of power saying that this is the way something should be without mm-hmm. ever questioning it because mm-hmm. you've never created that space. Um, so, you know, you know, when I say Satan, um, it is provocative and um, it is it can be alarming because it's kind of that cultural norms of what the devil is. Um, but in, in, in doing that, I hope that it creates um, a space for people to really question morality question evil, which is something I think is, is incredibly important to do, uh, and increase a space for people to really think deeply about what they what they do hold dear, what, what they really do believe, what is um, the kind of concepts of morality that inform their lives. Um, you know, because if we are to accept kind of the standard definition of evil, which I don't, I'm not even sure most people could define, but it's certainly employed often to describe, for example, terrorists, or perceived terrorists, or people who don't, um, you know, pay their taxes, or um, immigrants who are, you know, or migrants who are trying to come over to our country, or sometimes called people. It's, it's a word that's used so strongly to alienate people who don't fit into an established normal system in a way that's so dangerous, because mm-hmm. certainly, and, I mean, I don't believe in good and evil. I believe that there's just a human experience in the spectrum of our personalities that could be harmful to society or could be beneficial to society. But to, to be able to kind of dismiss it on a, on a cosmic scale um, ultimately justifies immense amounts of, of violence and pain. Uh, and I think that potentially by offering an alternative to when you talk about the devil, and, and obviously that's time to become but the people, you can create spaces to hopefully think a little deeper about what that means. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, we, we, uh, you just really, that was so articulate, Jex. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. I'm just uh, meditating on uh, this week. Uh, the, the big other is death. And, mm-hmm. and death comes at us from nature. So the, the, we want to overpower nature because it will kill us. But then racism and um, mistreating people around you who are less, less powerful and more mysterious than you, uh, that uh, uh, sort of disease of, of making, manufacturing other fear uh, is... Um, that's, that's, when you say evil, the way you just talked about it, I, I see Americans just dedicated to that fear. And in the, in this era of Trump, um, fetishizing it, really, uh, enjoying being afraid, being proud of it, being proud of their fear. You know, Trump, uh, we're all mixed up in, in religious, uh, tropes right now. <laughs> Trump, uh, when he flew into those towns in the Midwest that I grew up in, and he'd come in his jet, Jax, uh, 
and get out of his jet and he's all orange. <laughs> and he'd go up to the microphone in the hangar and he would talk violently about Washington, D.C. All the candidates have said they were outsiders, but he was a lot like a devil. And people just laughed. They loved it that he was going to go there and blow the place up. But he had a, his, his voice and the tone of his laughter and his gestures and his unusual hair. <laughs> he, uh, he was a, a archetype of some kind. Everybody was um, feeling uh, a f- divided from and separate from and, and, and inferiorized by the power of the government. And they shared this need for revenge of some kind. But here's this, here's this guy who's, who's walking out of some kind of movie. He's the devil in a suit. And they loved it. And I'm and a lot of them, of course, a lot of them right-wing Christians. Were you uh, observing this uh, in this way at all? Did you, did you see religiosity in the Trump phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, certainly. It's, it's, a, it's, it's really fascinating because you, you have uh, a figure that is behaving in a way that is um, duplicitous and, um, you know, somewhat of a um, rabble-rouser, kind of like, um, you know, like a troublemaker and mischievous and kind of fits the archetype of the devil in that way, um, but claiming a moral crusade. And um, a moral crusade that um, the evangelical Christian right have gotten behind hard. I mean, mm-hmm. that's you know what what you know, helps them be elected. And so there's also a dismissal of um, kind of conventional religious norms in order to get to gain power that's tied to Trump. And um, I think what really resonates well in that way and and, and mirrors it is that you know using violent language and the creation of fear as a form of control, and it's a form of control that the church has employed since the beginning of their existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the fear mm-hmm. of the devil, um, we should be, you know, the, the fear of sin or going to hell. Um, it's their most powerful motivator. Mm. And so it's a very similar tool that Trump uses to, um, to act as a savior. And if he's not, you know, the savior, then everybody is going to lose their jobs and go into poverty, and there's going to be terrorists you know, bombing small towns in Ohio, and, and, and that's a real thing of fear. So um, the narrative is extremely similar, um, but the faith and the, and the form that it comes in is um, atypical. But, you know, it's interesting because we do trust, you know, kind of metaphoric concepts of good and evil or, or you know, like an angel figure or a devil figure. But in practice, those things don't usually make sense. Um, you know, if you look at the Catholic Church, for example, or the Pope, um, you know, who, especially when they're engaged in um, sexual abuse crimes, um, you hear people making excuses for it and saying, well, they're under the devil's influence. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they're under the influence of Catholicism. <laughs> um, you know, so if, if you want to take a look at like, what this thing is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's truly um, comes from a Christian perspective. And so, and the fact that the Christian perspective is, is ultimately, in, in the Catholic case, um, detrimental and extremely harmful is something that people are uncomfortable with. And so I think at the same way, um, Trump is seeing a Trump is similarly using here um, in kind of 
uh, making a mockery of, of the kind of traditional norms of what a package of like a good Christian person looks like. But it doesn't ultimately matter because if the language is right and the philosophy behind that language in terms of motivating people using fear and propaganda is effective, then um, unconventional norms can go out the window. Um, Jax, I think people will want to hear more from you and uh, read some of your writing, and you can find that at jaxblackmore.com. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, we thank you so much for your time today. Thank um, you, Jax. I really could listen to you talk all day about just about anything, I think. And um, <laughs> so grateful for your work, and um, I hope that uh, you continue. And um, if there's ever anything we can do to help you, please let us know. Thanks so much. We hope I to see you when you and, visit uh, yeah. New York. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be back very soon, I'm sure. Okay, good luck out there. Take okay, care. thanks. Same to you. Bye now.
This is The Earth Wants You. I'm Savitri D. with Reverend Billy in New York City. Listeners, if you're just joining us, that was the Stop Shopping Choir. Beautiful singers that they are. Radical performance community. Uh, we welcome you back. And uh, I just wanted to share a little clip from a, an event here in New York City on uh, Saturday, January 12th. 12th. Uh, the Extinction Rebellion. You'll remember that Claire Farrell was on our show a few weeks ago, one of the founders of the Extinction Rebellion in the UK. So it's it's launched here in the US, and uh, this was the sort of inaugural kind of, you know, event. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's a little clip from Billy's sermon at the Quaker Meeting House in Manhattan. Uh, I hope you enjoy it.
So you can hear the crowd's pretty excited. People are into it. There's a lot of energy in the room. Um, <laughs> that old time religion. <laughs> if you want to join Without the religion, <laughs> if you want to join an action on January 26th, let us know. We'll talk to you about that. Uh, and the extinction rebellion continues to grow around the world. And let's go now to the drums of revolution with Killian Sunderman. Killian. Yeah. All right. Activism. Amen. Everywhere. What's going on? Everywhere there are humans, there's resistance. You know why? Because we want some of us to do the right thing. Okay. Extinction's got talent right here. The pangolin. Oh. The pangolin. The pangolin. It's a special friend. Also known as the scaly anteater. They are reclusive and nocturnal animals that roll up into a ball when threatened. They are seldom seen in the wild and are very hard to raise in captivity. Pangolins are the most heavily trafficked wild mammal in the world. An estimated 100,000 are taken from the wild every year across Africa and Asia. Their meat is considered a delicacy and their scales and fetuses are used in traditional Chinese medicine to treat a range of ailments from arthritis to cancer. Pangolins are also used in traditional African bush medicine. There are eight species of pangolins. Four are found in Africa and four in Asia. All are under threat and all are now protected from international trade. Pangolins are such voracious feeders that they are thought to consume around 70 million insects every year. 70 million. Acting as natural pest controllers, they occupy a similar niche to anteaters in South America, which is a prime example of convergent evolution. Pangolins also help to aerate their soil... Pangolins also help to aerate the soil with their burrowing and act as ecosystem engineers, providing burrows for other species. But get this, all pangolin species have long, sticky tongues, which they use to collect their ant and termite prey from deep within their nests or hollows of trees. A pangolin's tongue is actually attached near its pelvis and last set of ribs. And when at rest, it is contained within a cavity in its chest. When a pangolin's tongue is fully extended, it is longer than its entire body and head put together. (laughs) Pangolins do not have teeth, very unusual for a mammal. And rather than chewing, they swallow their prey whole, which is later processed within the stomach. The stomach of the pangolin contains inward pointing spines made out of keratin and small stones, which help to grind and mash their prey to facilitate digestions. Whoa. Whoa, I know. Pangolins are very, very secretive and very difficult to study. And many aspects of their life are unknown. Remain a mystery. And here, this is really the only sound I could find that was just pure pangolin. And it's just a pangolin walking in the bush. Okay? Looking looking for that next million ants. I heard reports that the pangolin makes like these little little sounds, but I couldn't find a recording. (laughs) If any of you have a recording of a pangolin, can you please send it to us? Thank you. 
sounded Thank like you. you had some hikers there. And now, Reverend Billy, please talk to us. We need you. Well, this has been a very interesting Earth Wants You. And uh, I feel the presence today more than some days. I feel the presence of our listeners. Hello out there. Hello in here. You're in here and I'm out there. I, I would like to now switch the uh, radio uh, technical facility and have all our listeners have microphones and just listen to what you have to say. But certainly there is that uh, kind of impulse today in our show. We have... Uh, unmasked the real power of apology, for instance, which is when you when you actually relive what you did, share it, and openly change yourself. We also have the the uh, the unknown that exists in the world of the know-it-alls, the people who are more convinced that they know more, actually know less. We have, of course, the the Arctic um, disappearing and the changing of the species. The this is all surprising to us. The scientists have not guessed this. We are we are surrounded right now by a revolt by the unknown. This is a part of saying that the Earth wants us. the The reality that we live in, the physical life of this place is mostly unknown to us. And we are taught, it's the Western tradition, as children we're taught that we know most, most of what we need to know. We are raised by that chauvinism. Am I right? We're raised by that arrogance. The Western colonization of the world, of nature, the beating back of the animals and the, the, the storms and all that surrounds us so that we will be the king of the hill. Uh, that's how we are raised. And now we know, especially after 2018, especially after Irma Maria Florence Michael Malibu Paradise, we, we know for sure that the unknown has control, that the unknown is evolution, and part of evolution is devolution. Part of life is death. And we know right now that uh, the best thing that we can do is to listen, to stand on the edge of extinction, stand on the edge of the unknown, to be humble before it, and to wait for our instructions from the earth. We're the predator species, but some of us don't believe we have to be the predator species. The only way to not be the predator species is to accept our instructions from the unknown. Earthalooyah. <laughs> Gaialooyah. You are a living being. You have balanced all these millennia. Nitrogen oxygen 
and carbon dioxide in this magic air that surrounds us. This air that sustains life, that interacts with the water and the soil to make life. We've been the beneficiaries of this generous offering and we've betrayed you. Now, some of us among the predator species are coming to you. We're, we're revolutionaries. We're criminals. We're outside of the norm of our society. And we're coming to the edge of extinction. And we're asking you, tell us what we must do. We apologize. We are transparent about our sins. You heard a lot of them in the news in the natural world today. We're learning what we've done wrong. Teach us what to do right. We give it up. We give it over to you. Lisa!